We are in a series called Ephesians. For those of you that are new with us or visiting with us, uh, so we are kind of smack dab in the middle of this series. So welcome to just an ongoing series. This is like jumping into your spouse's Netflix binge, like three, four episodes in. So if you want to go back, if you want to catch up, you can. You can go online, myevangel.church. You can find all of our stuff there. Catch up, find out what we've been talking about. But we are jumping into chapter 4 of Ephesians today. So if you have your Bibles, you can pull it out. Pull up Ephesians chapter 4. And I know that some of you have been part of organizations over the years that were super healthy. Who's ever been a part of an organization that just had a really healthy culture? Who's been a part of an organization that had really unhealthy culture, right? I think we've all had a taste of that too. What, what, is, what is it that creates culture? I want you to just think about that for a minute. What is it that creates culture? What, what are the markers of a great culture? What are the markers of a poor Toxic culture. Um, culture is shaped by a few different things. In an unhealthy culture, typically this is the way it goes. Culture is shaped by what you allow. Just, it's shaped by what you allow. So in an unhealthy culture, there is no clarity around mission and vision. And there's no clarity around the values that drive us. And so what happens is each individual comes into that work culture, comes into that organization, and they have their own values that they bring. They have their own outlook of what the mission is based on their portfolio or their role or whatever it may be. And then they just go for it. And then culture is simply made by what you allow. In fact, these kinds of organizations, they kind of attract hyper-individualistic people. People that just don't want to be told what to do or how to do it or why to do it. This is what creates so often unhealthy, toxic culture. We've all had a taste of it. We can all look back and see the markers of that happen. So the question is, how do we create a healthy culture? One that brings life to everyone involved. Well, there's Two elements that I really believe we need to have when creating a healthy culture. One, clarity of vision. What are we pursuing together? What are we pursuing together? Clarity of vision. Number two, what are our values? What are the values that drive us? What are the values that help bring clarity to decision-making? What are our values? And healthy culture has clarity around these two components. I would argue vision is great. We spend a lot of time thinking about vision as organizations. I would argue that your values actually affect your organization more. A group of people who champion the same values and vision are unstoppable and united in purpose. And Paul, the apostle, I think he got this. He understood this. He knew this to be true. And so he brought clarity 
around vision. Here at Evangel Church, if you're new with us, let me just catch you up. Here at Evangel Church, our vision is to be a safe place for everyone. And by everyone, we mean everyone. A safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus and receive his love, looking more and more like him each day. That's the progression. That's what we're pursuing together as a community of faith. But we also have values that become so key to our decision-making around how we do that. How do we do that together as a community? And they go like this. Biblical truth is our number one value here at Evangel. Biblical truth will change your life. Prayer, number two value. We begin with amen surrounding all we do with prayer. Number three is discipleship. The mission is disciples making disciples. This is what we value. Family, standing with and building up the family. We value family. It's particularly in the moment in which we live, we value family. Stand with and build up the family. Community, you were made for community, welcome home. We value Powell River. Blessed to be a blessing to Powell River. And then finally, global missions. Jesus said go and people matter. These are our values. This is what shapes us. This is what we're about. And to be a part of Evangel Church in any significant way is to be in agreement with our vision and our values. If you want to take leadership here, you need to be on board with our vision, where we're going, what we're pursuing, and our values, the way in which we're going to get there. If you're taking notes today, I mentioned that Paul deeply understood this. And so Paul brings us some kingdom values as he begins chapter 4 in Ephesians. I'm going to warn you, before I even give you our main thing statement today, you got one thing to remember. That's it. That's all I ask of you. It's going to hurt a little bit. It actually kind of hurt, like, writing this sermon a little bit as the Holy Spirit led me through this moment and kind of led me into places of my own life. It's not fun. But the outcome, what we get to do and what we get to be a part of is unbelievable. So it's not easy. But the reward, the ROI, if you will, is the highest you will get in this life. All right, you guys ready? Can you handle this? If you're taking notes, write this down. God's values bring death to flesh, life to the soul, and build the body. God's values, they bring death to the flesh, life to the soul, and they build the body. Capital B body, by the way. Capital B body there. So if you have your Bibles, like I said, Ephesians chapter 4, let's jump into verse 1. Verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He means this literally, by the way. Paul's in prison when he writes this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
In many ways, Paul's lead up to this moment, he's been building a case. He's been building in, through chapters 1 through about 3. He's been building kind of a theological, doctrinal argument for you being in Christ, that Jesus is all you need, that he has predestined you and he's pursued you and he's chosen you. He's built this kind of theological argument and now we kind of move to this moment where he kind of puts the rubber to the road, if you will. This becomes really practical for us. And so he begins to address the Ephesians from a very humble place. He says, hey, by the way, I'm in prison. You might be ashamed of that. That might look really bad on me. He's coming from this really humble place as he's in prison in Rome. And he says, I urge you, I urge you. The word urge here in the Greek actually kind of lends itself even better to like, I beg you. I beg of you. I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, your behaviors, your interactions, how you approach relationship, how you approach business, how you approach every avenue of your life, walk in all those things in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called in Christ Jesus, those in Christ. And we've established that you are in Christ. We've come to the conclusion doctrinally that God has predestined you for salvation. And now he turns to this sense of duty and responsibility. These are two words that we don't like. Duty how many like duty as a concept for living? Hey, friends, here's the deal. My generation, I'm a millennial. I'm a cusper on the millennial, so don't judge me too hard. I'm a millennial. We have Gen Zers coming up. Did you know duty and responsibility is not like the highest value? Duty means doing things you don't want to do at times. Duty means choosing what's right over what's expedient or easy or comfortable. Duty comes with some elements of pain at times. How many know that to be true? They come with elements of sacrifice at times. And Paul says you have a duty and a responsibility I love that word responsibility because it's so positive. If you, what do you break it down? What do you break it down to two words? Response, right? And then ability. You have a responsibility. So you have a duty too, but you also have the ability to do it. And so Paul brings such hope in this because he says, in your response to your salvation, coming into the presence of a holy God, in response to that love that you have received, walk in a worthy manner, in a worthy manner. But not only in response, but now I'm going to give you the ability to do it by the Holy Spirit, the empowerment to do it, to walk in a worthy manner. The values Paul brings to our attention here in these next few verses are going to chafe against our flesh a little bit. They're going to kill us in a way. 
Because they, they demand something of us. God's values bring death to flesh, life to the soul, and build the spirit. Let's jump into verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with. Maybe your translation says long-suffering. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'm not going to lie. If I could write down values that wouldn't make the list of our societal values, these would probably be them. <laughs> right? Like, I'm not even sure if these would make, would make the list of our current kind of value system. Because our current value system is so kind of contrary to this. Our, our current value system is self is at the top of the list. Because don't you know life is all about you? Right? The story is about you. It's your story. You're the hero. I'm being a little bit facetious. I'm sorry. And we live in a society that has put the individual as king or queen. And and if if it's not the individual, then what we do is we find a tribe that is close enough to us as an individual to affirm our identity in whatever way that may mean. But even in that tribalism that creates a very segmented, broken society, we are looking for people that will simply say, you are the king, you are the queen of your kingdom and your story. We surround ourselves with yes people. And yet the values of the kingdom promote the death of self. Not, not the death of who you are and your personality and, and all that. No, no. The death of self. The death of what you value in this world. When you come in Christ, he gives you a different value system. That becomes a filter for the way you live, the way you walk, the decisions that you make. The values that Paul introduces to us in the first century here, as he writes to the Ephesians, these were values that were not popular in the first century. In fact, the word humility was barely ever used in the Greek writings. You barely see this word anywhere because it's a derogatory word. It It wasn't a high value. If you were a humble person, you were a loser, you were a sucker. I don't know about you, but we live today in a society that would look at humility and say, you're a sucker. You're a, I don't want to, oh man. Words, words are so brutal today because they have so many political connotations. And I'm, I'm never, I, I'm a very contrary to being political from the pulpit. So I'm trying to use my words properly here. So Holy Spirit, help me. 
Let's just move on. In Ephesians 3:17, Paul Paul has built an argument leading up to this moment. Remember I said that he's building a doctrinal theological argument. And he leads up to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17. And he says that God's people are to be rooted in what? Rooted in love. Rooted in love. Rooted and grounded in love. And so what follows here is this hard truth of what, what biblical love looks like. He gave a theological argument and precept, and now he's going, here's what that looks like. Here's what it looks like to be rooted and grounded in love. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first value he gives us is humility. Humility. Your translation may say lowliness. Perceiving yourself in a lower state than those around you. This is tough. Like right off the hop, he throws us a tough one. What does it look like to be rooted and grounded in love in community with one another? Be humble. Esteem others as greater than yourself. This requires some dying, doesn't it? Rick Warren wrote a sentiment that is often misattributed to C.S. Lewis, but he wrote in uh, Purpose Driven Life, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Okay? Let, let's, let's make that very clear. Humility is not walking around beating yourself up. I'm the worst. I'm the I am the worst person. I am just a worm. A worm. I'm lower than a worm. Saved by grace. Right? This is what we do. And in doing that, we say to God, we are not valuable like you've said we are valuable. We were made in God's image. There's worth and value to each individual person. So humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. C.S. Lewis in his great work, Mere Christianity, he wrote this in chapter 8 entitled, The Great Sin. You ready for this? Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy, I love that word, smarmy person, who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably, all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. First step. To realize that one is proud. And a biggest step, too, 
At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. The first step is to realize just how proud you are before you can walk in humility. And something has to die for us to walk in that. For us to change our attitude and our perspective of who we are in the big story of the world. I can recall a number of moments in my life where I've been humbled. And, <laughs> and without exception, each and every one of them came with a deep realization of my pride. Each of them came with a deep realization of my pride and the conviction of the Holy Spirit pointing it out. And then you have a choice to make. Will you die? Or will you remain king and queen of your kingdom? So we can probably agree that the first step to walking in humility is acknowledging our pride. But what is the thing that kind of serves as the catalyst for this? What, what brings us to the place where we can even begin to look at our pride? When, when we think over your life, what led you to those moments when you acknowledged pride in your life? I want you to just consider. William Barclay, he writes, self-satisfaction depends on the standard with which we compare ourselves. If we compare ourselves with our neighbors, we may well emerge very satisfactorily from the comparison. But the Christian standard is Jesus Christ and the demands of God's perfection. And against that standard, there is no room for pride. The closer you draw near to God, the more aware of your brokenness you become. This is, by the way, oftentimes some of the barriers that keep us from daily prayer and daily spiritual practices. Because it's in those daily spiritual practices of coming into the word of God as our standard of truth. It's those daily practices of speaking with him, bearing our soul to him, that we become aware of places where we have to die a little. Sometimes this becomes a barrier because we want to remain the king or the queen of our kingdom. God's values bring death to the flesh, life to the soul, and build the body. The next value that we see here is gentleness. Perhaps your translation says meekness or forbearance. And I don't know about you, but so much of what I see in culture today is everything but gentle. It's, it's, it's loud and it's obnoxious. There's, there's this kind of loud about strength, about being the alpha. <laughs> this, this, this garbage kind of pursuit of being strong and impenetrable and independent and all of these values that we have as a society. And yet the biblical worldview says, no, 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 be gentle, be meek. And, and in a culture that kind of pushes kind of an obnoxious uh, posturing of strength or influence or popularity, we can kind of maybe start believing a little bit of a lie that to be gentle and to be meek in this world is to be weak. Sometimes we can kind of believe that meek is weak, and it's not. 
We're not talking. Meekness is not synonymous with weakness. If I could define meekness, this is the way I would define it. Meekness is strength under control. Gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is is strength. It's position, authority, assuredness, partnered with self-discipline, humility, and love. And the word Paul uses here in the Greek for gentleness, for meekness, was a favorite of Aristotle, the philosopher. And John Stott, he, he writes this of Aristotle's take. He says, meekness was more warmly applauded by Aristotle because he hated extremes and loved the golden mean. He saw in Praetus, meekness, the quality of moderation, the mean between being too angry and never being angry at all. The word was also used of domesticated animals. So meekness is not a synonym for weakness. On the contrary, it is gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. It is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. Meekness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights either in the presence of God or of men. I want to read that again because some of you need to get this. Especially when you're on Facebook and you want to drop that comment. You want to get in that digital debate. Meekness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights. Either in the presence of God or of men. Gordon Fee calls this the radical middle. By the way, if you want to live in the radical middle, particularly in moments and cultural moments where things are polarized and divided, you're going to get persecuted from both sides. But there's something of dying to self. William Barclay echoes Aristotle when he writes, the person who is preos is the one who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. To put that in another way, the person who is preos, meek, is the one who is stirred by indignation at the wrongs and the sufferings of other, but is never moved to anger by any personal wrongs and insults. So the person who is meek is the one who is always angry at the right time but never angry at the wrong time. Allow me to give you the single greatest picture of meekness the world has ever seen. It involves a cross. And it involves a Messiah. When you look at a cross and you consider Jesus naked, beaten, nailed to that cross, what do you see? Do you see weakness? No, no, no. That's not weakness. That was meekness. That was gentleness. Jesus, the commander of angel armies. Jesus, the creator 
of all things. With one word, he could have destroyed everything that he created. With one word, he could have had a legion of angel armies come into that moment. But he didn't. Why? Because he was rooted and grounded in love. And he had a mission that was bigger than himself. And so with the greatest restraint of strength the world has ever seen, he chose to take his last breath on that cross. Strength restrained, motivated by love, with humility and gentleness. God's values bring death to the flesh, life to the soul, and build up the body. So the key to humility is acknowledging our pride. The key to gentleness is bringing strength under control, motivated by love. And we need both of those now for what comes next here. Patience and long-suffering. Man, long-suffering, what a... What a what a concept. Patience and long-suffering. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, suffering long with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to treat these two together as, as one thing. Uh, this may be the hardest value to live by. This one may kill your flesh more than any other one. Patience and long-suffering. Uh, do you know what long-suffering means in the Greek? To suffer long. Be encouraged, friends. To suffer long. The, the word that Paul uses for patience here is so interesting, though. It carries this definition. I don't know if you're ready for this. I wasn't ready for this when I did a word kind of study on this. I was not quite prepared. All right, so I want to prepare you. It's kind of a tough definition. It says this. Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says that this word patience is defined as ability to take a great deal of punishment from evil people or circumstances without losing one's temper, without becoming irritated and angry, or without taking vengeance. <laughs> it includes the capacity to bear pain or trials without complaint, the ability to forbear under severe provocation, and the self-control which keeps one from acting rashly, even though suffering opposition or adversity. Patience. Patience is one of those virtues and values that requires hardship to exist. It requires that person you don't like to exist. It requires a circumstance that makes your life so uncomfortable. And yet patience is a key to living the kingdom life. 
It's a value of the kingdom. And the key to patience is love. The the key to bearing with one another, long-suffering, is love. Now, let's take a moment. Let's zoom out for context, okay? This is where we kind of take a moment. We zoom out and we go, in what circumstance and what, what, why is he talking about this? For what context? For what place within our lives? What community? What? Okay. Verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But Paul starts here, there's one body. What body is he talking about? He's talking about the church, right? What is, what is Paul's metaphor of the body? It's the church. It's this. It's you guys right here, right now. The body. I want you to think about this. The values of humility, of gentleness, of patience, of long-suffering is in the context of us. It's hard to believe. But there are people in this room that can push your buttons. Some of you are sitting right beside them right now. They know how best to push your buttons. And yet the values of the kingdom, creating the culture of the kingdom, the way in which we do it, humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. You know, when, when you read this, you think, okay, Paul, like, these values, this is great. Like, you, you, you kind of want to take it out of the context of the church and to put it in the context of the church against the world, you know? Us versus them. Okay, this is great. We walk in these values when the world's coming against us. When, no, no, this is, we walk in these values when our brother or sister hurt us. When, when an imperfect community of faith makes a poor decision, and it affects us, and it hurts us, and it wounds us. This is the context. How many of you have been in church for a long, long time? How how many have felt hurt in the church? I think we could all, to some degree or another, acknowledge hurt or wounds that we carry because of being part, choosing to be a part of community of faith. And yet, what a perfect environment to practice the values of the kingdom. To walk in love, rooted and grounded in love, which inspires and motivates us to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, even in suffering. So let me ask you the question, what is the outcome? What is the outcome of these values? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. What is the culture it creates? Paul gives us a clue here. 
He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What do these values lead us to as a church? They create a culture of unity and a culture of peace. When we learn to forgive one another, we create peace. Show me a church that doesn't have unity and I'll show you individuals who haven't walked in these values. Show me a church that is united and has peace and I'll show you people that choose to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. As I was writing this, I was at Starbucks on the patio. If you ever see me at Starbucks on the patio, by the way, and you're wondering what I'm doing by myself, I'm writing a sermon. It's where I do like my creative stuff. And I almost started crying at the table because a thought occurred to me. For Lisa and I, it'll be almost this November, seven years being here at Evangel. And I just wanted to say, this sermon, this sermon was part of the series. This sermon was not something that we pulled out because, hey, we need to deal with this. We need to deal with all the proud people and deal with all the strong personalities. And that's, this just happened to be part of the series. This is a good reminder for us. This is a good just, I just want to say publicly to each and every one of you, thank you for making Evangel such a home and such a family. It has been such a privilege to be a part of a community of faith that has people that walk in these values. And there has been a unity and there has been a sense of peace. We're not perfect. We never will be this side of heaven. But as your pastor, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the values of the kingdom. Thank you for choosing unity, for being rooted and grounded in love, for choosing forgiveness when you needed to choose forgiveness instead of bitterness. There's always room to be better. There's always room to grow and mature in our faith. But I just wanted to say that to you. Thank you.
It's been such a privilege. And so, Lord, we recognize your kingdom. That, Lord, you call us to play by some different rules. You call us to some different values in this world. Values that cause us to look different, to behave different, to be different. The values that cause us and to, to chase different things than people around us. Things like righteousness and holiness. Things like self-sacrifice, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. Lord, may you deepen our ability to love as we are rooted and grounded in the one who is love. And Lord, as you identify areas of pride in our life, would you, Lord, bring those to our attention so we can submit those places of our soul to you so that our flesh can die, but our soul can live. So our flesh can die, but our spirit can be made alive in greater measure. And that's so that we can build the body this community of faith, this city on a hill that cannot be hidden from the world, but reveals a better way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.